Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rolling right along on if you don't like that. And today's episode is brought to you by New Works Plumbing of Sacramento. New Works, locally owned for over 20 years, they've got a fix for you. Just go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X plumbing.com. And remember, if you happen to have an emergency in the middle of the night, New Works will be there for you. And again, thanks to those that have reached out via email or on my social media platform to say that you've used New Works. They've been great. I'm happy to hear that. I pass the messages along and uh, I can't thank New Works Plumbing enough for their support of this podcast. Again, that's newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W, WRXplumbing.com. Well, this weekend, fans will have an opportunity to walk into Arco Arena, building that opened in November of 1988. And the Kings played their last game there in April of 2016. And I thought that on today's podcast and then again on Friday, we'd reminisce a little bit. Uh, I would give you some of my favorite memories from that venue. It obviously has a very special place in my heart because it was the first ever home game that I announced for the Sacramento Kings. Uh, I started doing the Kings, obviously, that year in 1988. I had moved to Sacramento in July of 1987. Timing is everything. Being in the right place at the right time is everything. And those things happened for me when I took the job as the sports director at Channel 31 in Sacramento, moving from uh, Decatur, Illinois, where I was a weekend sports anchor at the ABC affiliate there. It was a hyphenated market. It was Decatur, Champaign, and the uh, capital of Illinois, Springfield. But moving to Sacramento in the summer of 87 was an eye-opening experience. Uh, it, It was so great to see palm trees. You know, you don't realize this. When you grow up in an area of the country that has four seasons, and growing up on Long Island, where in the winter it's brutally cold at times. Yes, you do get the snow. And, you know, the only time you see palm trees is on TV, all right, or in a magazine. And I'll never forget the first time moving out to Sacramento when there were palm trees everywhere. And again, if you're not used to that, it just puts a very warm, great feeling (laughs) into your mind. So that was one of the first things that I remember when I moved to Sacramento. But uh, it was about nine months after I arrived in uh, Sacramento that I found out that uh, I would be the new TV announcer for the Kings. 
and just experiencing the old Arco, the 10,333, the vibe, the atmosphere. I mean, there was really nothing like it. I had just come from Big Ten country. Lou Henson was the coach at Illinois. Bobby Knight was at Indiana. You know, I had Bill Frieder at Michigan. And I mean, I was watching, you know, phenomenal college basketball all the time with wild, crazy fans. And when I moved to Sacramento and went to my first ever Kings game in the old building, I couldn't believe it. I was absolutely blown away. It reminded me of what I had been watching with the fan atmosphere uh, in the Big Ten. But watching the arena being built, the one that opened in 1988, Arco Arena 2, Greg Lukenbill did a masterful job. You know, they built that building, if you can believe this, for only $40 million. 17,317 the capacity. Think about that. Only $40 million was the price tag. And I'll never forget when Greg invited me and a few others into the bowl of the arena. It didn't even have a roof on. And there were cranes and tractors working around us. And I remember we had the hard hat on. And I remember standing where center court would be on the dirt at that arena as it was being built. And Greg was nice enough to bring us in there you know every now and then to see the progress and it was beautiful it was so exciting for the city of Sacramento to have you know an arena with luxury suites and I mean it was great Uh, it was phenomenal I mean you know listen back then if you were in Sacramento back then you know what I'm talking about there was nothing around the arena nothing nothing at all you know Reggie Theus used to talk about you know hunting outside the arena with his bow and arrow. I mean, he talked about it all the time. You would see sheep herders out there. I mean, it was just the most unbelievable thing in the world. And if you're new to Sacramento or you've only lived there for 15 or 20 years, you have no idea. Just Google what Arco Arena looked like back then in the surrounding area of Natomas. There weren't a lot of ways into the arena. Truxel didn't go out to the arena. There was no Arena Boulevard. You had Del Paso or you could go Northgate. And that, that, what was it, North Market Street to get you to the arena also where the old arena was? I may have the name of that street wrong, but there weren't a lot of ways to get to and from the arena. And what I remember when that arena opened in November of 88, the Kings had opened the season in Portland, and that was my first ever telecast. I was doing the games with Ted Green back then. I'll never forget the starting lineup that night for the Portland Trailblazers. It was Terry Porter and Clyde Drexler. Jerome Kersey at small forward with Buck Williams and Kevin Duckworth. And Mike Schuler was the head coach, a guy that I would get to know very well when he became an assistant coach with Sacramento. And I just love Mike. He was such a, a great man. But I'll always remember that night. I'll remember getting a phone call a few hours. You know, I'll never forget this. The hotel phone rang, and it was Tom Curran. And Tom had done the games for the first three years at KOVR Channel 13. And I'd gotten to know Tom well and loved Tom. And Tom called me and wished me luck. And I'll never forget the conversation. Tom said, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'd be lying to you if I said that, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm glad that you're doing the games. It was something like that. But he said, I'm happy for you. And he goes, I'm telling you, you're going to do great. You're made for this. And I'll just never forget hanging up the phone thinking, well, now what a class act that is. Tom Curran, who did the games for three years, 
on KOVR, giving me a call at my hotel room a few hours before my first ever telecast. I'll, rem- I'll always remember that. I'll always remember that, the, the class and the professionalism that he exhibited to me. But then, after the Blazers game, I'll never forget going to pick up my tuxedo that uh, I had rented. And I was living in North Natomas, only, geez, just a, f- a few miles away from the arena. And I'll never forget the excitement of waking up that morning and going to shoot around and just telling myself that I had to take a nap because I needed energy and I I couldn't take a nap. I'll never forget that day in November of 1988. There was no way I was going to be able to fall asleep. I tried, I tried, I tried, I tried, but I was just too excited. And I remember sitting at uh, my table doing my work and getting prepared for the game and then I remember getting into my tuxedo and how excited I was uh, to finally be getting into my car and making the very short drive, you know, down t- d- across uh, Del Paso Boulevard to uh, the arena and walking into that beautiful facility in my tuxedo and the excitement and people out in the parking lot. I mean, it was a happening. Obviously, every news crew, not only the news crews from Sacramento, but, you know, there were Bay Area news crews there. I mean, it was a big freaking deal, obviously. You know, a new arena, uh, the commissioner, David Stern, you know, Lucanville, Benvenuti. Every, I mean, it was an absolute happening. And I, I'll tell you, I don't even remember anything about the game. Yeah, I really don't. I couldn't tell you anything about the game. I, I really don't remember anything about that game all I remember was the buildup of the excitement I remember walking into the arena and you know here's something else that you might find interesting maybe not nobody knew me nobody knew who I was I I was working at channel 31 on the news I was doing the sports on a newscast that nobody watched I had been on the air in Sacramento doing the sports on the news for a little over a year And I was rarely recognized outside at a store or a restaurant or wherever. Nobody knew who I was. I don't even think when I walked into Arco Arena that night, and I really mean this, that a lot of people knew who I was. Nobody knew it. I mean, very few people knew who Grant Napier was in 1988. And I remember, you know, sitting center court with the tuxedo and... The other thing I remember so much about that game is Dan Vieira, the Sacramento Bee TV media critic, radio TV media critic, uh, gave me a very good review after that game of the broadcast. And that meant the world to me. Like I was, you know, that that really helped my presence in Sacramento. It also helped the nervousness of the management at Channel 31, who was giving me a huge assignment along with Joe Axelson, the then general manager of the Sacramento Kings. But I'll never forget that review that Dan Vieira did on me in the Sacramento Bee. I mean, it it was huge for me. And then Steve Kennedy of the Sacramento Union also did a review on me, which was very favorable. You know, things like that go a long way, particularly when you are just starting out and you need credibility and you need to be uh, built up. But I, again, I I couldn't tell you anything about that game. I, I was I was on just cloud nine doing the game. I was just like, I could not believe that I was sitting at center court at a brand new building, 
you know, announcing NBA basketball with the Sacramento Kings. I just will never forget that. The things that I remember in the early years of the arena is everyone wanted tickets. You know, you would always have people wanting tickets. It didn't matter who the Kings were playing. It did not matter whether it was a weeknight game or a weekend game. People wanted to be at Arco Arena. And people wanted to go to the arena. It didn't even matter really what the event was, whether it was a concert. didn't matter whether it was the uh, the circus, the ice shows. People just wanted to be in the building. It was the only place to be in Sacramento. There was no any there was no other place you would go. You had to go to Arco Arena. That's where you wanted to be. You didn't give a damn what the event was. You know, I had some phenomenal times at concerts at Arco Arena. I mean, I remember seeing Whitney Houston on New Year's Eve. And that was just a phenomenal concert to see Whitney Houston. And what I remember about that, it wasn't that big of a deal to people. And then, obviously, when, you know, Whitney passed, you know, you reflect back and go, wow, I'm so blessed that I got a chance to see her perform live. But I remember New Year's Eve. I remember the the uh, the, the TV station, you know, had a suite uh, at the arena. And I remember being asked you know, if I want to go to the concert. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go. But I remember they still had some tickets available, even on the day of the 31st, which I, in retrospect, find to be very odd. But anyway, it was a great time. Uh, I saw a U2, you know, at that concert or at that arena, which was a spectacular venue. And I didn't really know anything about U2. I probably couldn't have told you one song. I, I wasn't a U2 fan. But boy, that concert, that was one of the best concerts I'd ever seen uh, at the arena. You know, Elton John and Billy Joel, I'll never forget, playing for three consecutive hours. It was phenomenal. No intermission. I mean, those were some great concerts uh, throughout those years at Arco Arena. I remember seeing Kenny G and Peebo Bryson. I remember having, you know, seats like in the third row. And that was uh, just an incredible performance with Kenny G and Peebo Bryson on stage together. You know, obviously, as my kids were born, in 1996, in 1998, I remember going to the ice shows every year, the circus every year. And listen, I'm sure you have similar memories with family outings to go to the circus and the the ice shows. And that, that was great. You know, the joy on the kids' faces to take them to a first-class facility, which, let's face it, Arco Arena was. That, that facility... When it was built by Greg Lukenbill and company, they did a hell of a job. They did. You know, they did the impossible. They really did. You know, there weren't a lot of people that thought he could pull that off. You know, there weren't a lot of people that thought he could pull off having the Kings move from Kansas City in the first place. And then Arco A1 was a great success story. And then obviously the Arco A2, which uh, changed into the Power Balance Pavilion, Sleep Train Arena. But, you know, to me, it will always be Arco Arena. It will never be anything else other than Arco Arena. But, you know, I'm thinking about I did the Arena Football League in there for a year, the Sacramento Attack, and Joe Cap was the uh, coach for, if you can believe that, you know, the former uh, Minnesota Viking. I remember there was roller derby in the arena for a year, a roller derby team. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I, I, I believe there was an indoor soccer uh, team that played in there for a short period of time, but I remember doing the Arena Football games with the Sacramento Attack 
and that was a blast. And, you know, there was also, you know, exhibition hockey that was played. You know, the Sharks had games in there for a couple of years in the preseason. And I always tell you the story, you know, about doing the Montreal Canadiens game with uh, Dick Irvin because I was at Skate Around in the morning of the Canadiens and the Sharks. I hung out at the arena for a couple hours and I was standing against the glass and the and Dick came up to me, and I knew who he was because I used to watch Hockey Night in Canada, Bowling Green all the time. We used to get the station, and I used to love watching Hockey Night in Canada. And when he came up and started talking to me, I mean, I actually got chills. I could not believe, you know, that one of the great hockey names uh, in the history of that sport in Canada was talking to me, and he invited me to come up on the Montreal Canadiens radio network and do the broadcast with him. That was just a a great thrill. You know, I have so many phenomenal memories in those early days. I remember the players. You know, I remember when Kenny Smith, you know, was a rookie, and I remember interviewing Vinny Del Negro on the blacktop at Consumnes River College, and, you know, Vinny ended up becoming a very, very close friend of mine and his wife, and, you know, I just... To, to see Vinny flourish with the San Antonio Spurs and then what he did over in Italy and being a head coach and commentator. I'll never forget interviewing Vinny outside of the gym on the blacktop. And we had a cameraman and just, you know, one, we were just sitting on two fold-up chairs. And that was the first time I'd ever talked to Vinny. And I remember being a great interview, but I remember him being very quiet, but he was so respectful and polite. You know, those are the days I remember, you know, Joe Klein. I remember going after games. I remember going there. There was only two places to go. You know, TGIF Fridays was where most of the guys would go to eat after the games at Arco Arena because there was either that or the Pepper Mill on Arden Way. There was no other, there was no other where you couldn't go eat anywhere. No way. You're not going anywhere. You think you're going to get something to eat in Sacramento at 10 o'clock at night? What are you, out of your freaking mind? No. Uh -uh. Everything was shut down. So if you can make it to Friday's or Peppermill, those were the two places. And then we used to go hang out at Confetti's, which was right next to the Peppermill, right across from the mall. That was the only place to hang out at that in Harlow's on J Street. That was it. I mean, you didn't go anywhere else. You know, I remember just all of those memories tied in. Uh, the great Wayman Tisdale, when he was traded from Indiana and just being around him every day and Mitch Richmond and Spud Webb and, you know, some of these players ended up becoming very close friends of mine to this day you know spud webb is a dear friend of mine and you know if you missed the podcast that i did with spud webb months ago you should go back and check it out just google grant napier with spud webb and it was a phenomenal conversation it was one of my favorite podcasts you know that i've done and i always talk about you know being around wayman tisdale and watching him practice at that building and watching him you know go through his routine and i remember this I'll never forget when Dick Motto, and I've told this story before, I was at practice at that arena one morning, and Dick said, I need you to officiate the scrimmage. And I'm like, Dick, I can't officiate the scrimmage. What the hell's wrong with you? He threw me his whistle. He said, you are officiating the scrimmage. And I didn't call a foul on Spud driving to the basket. And good Lord, the guy didn't talk to me for three weeks. You know, I couldn't believe Dick did that. He goes, I need you to officiate. You got to remember back then, there was, there was, what, one assistant coach, right? You had one equipment manager, and you had one trainer. That's it. You had the great late Bill Jones was the trainer. You had the one, uh, was it Larry Heslin was the equipment manager, I believe. You had Dick Mono with a coach. And you had, what, a graduate assistant. You, your traveling party was very, very small. And so Dick would always help ask me to help him in 
to pass the ball uh, in drills in shoot-around. Uh, every shoot-around, Dick would have me on the court. You know, I'll never forget being at Madison Square Garden for the first time at shoot-around. You know, that was the biggest thrill for me, being on the floor at Madison Square Garden. And Dick goes, come out here. I need you to, you know, help me with shoot-around. And I was just like, man, I'm standing on Madison Square Garden with an NBA team uh, doing drills. You know, things like that that I look back on. But Arco Arena, those days, those early days, you know, a brand-new arena that I had watched being constructed, that I was privy to be inside with Greg Lukenbill, and to see it all come to fruition, opening night with the tuxedo, you know, some of those great concerts that I was at, you know, being at the, the announcer with the Sacramento attack, just the, the, the excitement. You know, I remember that probably as much as anything. And I'm going to, on Friday, I'm going to have more on the particular memories as it relates to the Sacramento Kings and some other sporting events. But the thing that will always stick out to me about that arena, the excitement night in, night out, it really did not waver. Everyone across the league knew it. All the players from other teams couldn't wait to come in to play at Arco Arena. The Kings stunk, but they had, if you were going to go in there and win at Arco Arena, you better be prepared because the fans were the best. And they were going to be there every night, 17,317. And it didn't matter how bad the team was, and you and I both know there were a lot of bad teams, a lot of bad teams. As a matter of fact, most of the years that the Sacramento Kings had in that building were bad years, right? Think about it. Bad years. Nine playoffs in that era. Nine in the entire longevity of the building. You know, the 96 season against Seattle, and then when Rick Adelman came on board, eight straight playoff appearances, and we haven't seen one since 2006. So the arena opened in 1988 and closed in 2016. There were a lot of lean, awful years. But the one thing that was not awful were the crowds, the fans, the passion, the excitement. There was nothing like it other than, I would say, Chicago Stadium in the NBA when Michael Jordan played there. Nothing like it. And I was privy and blessed to be in every arena in the league. And I think I have a pretty good gauge on the best arenas, the best crowds, and the Sacramento faithful. They were at the top of the list. And everyone knew it. I'll never forget in the early 2000s, Mike Breen comes up to me as we're walking off the court. And he said, this place is absolutely unbelievable. He said, listen, if you're ever sick, call me, all right? Let the team know I will fly out all the way from New York to fill in for you. I mean, think about that. The announcer for the freaking New York Knicks, Mike Breen. This is before he became the lead announcer for the NBA. I think Bob Costas and Marv Albert were the guys back then. But think about that. Mike Breen coming up to me and telling me that he would love to do games at Arco Arena, the Knicks announcer, saying, I will fly out if you ever can't do a game just to be in this building and that atmosphere. Doesn't get any better than that. Coming up on Friday's show, I'm going to give you some real particulars. I'm going to talk about some of my favorite nights, my favorite memories ever at the Arco Arena. As fans will walk through there for the final time this weekend, Reminisce, take pictures, and then that's it. There will be no more opportunities to go into a building that again opened in November of 1988 and closed in 2016. Part two of my Arco Arena memories will be coming up on Friday's podcast. 
Hey, folks, I want to talk to you about Z-Biotics. Let's face it, after a night with drinks, I don't bounce back the next day like I used to. I've got to make a choice. I can either have a great night or a great next day. That is until I found Z-Biotics. Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night. Drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. And again, I was a bit on the fence about Zbiotics initially, but then I was at a birthday party. Uh, my buddy and his wife had rented out a restaurant, and I had a couple of drinks, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give this a shot tonight. And you know what, folks? Believe me, it is the real deal. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, reunions. Hey, there's so much going on, right? Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Go to zbiotics.com slash grant to get 15% off your first order when you use grant at checkout. Zbiotics is back with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, go to zbiotics.com slash grant. Use the code grant at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It is now time for our CrowdUltra Q&A. Just go to CrowdUltra.com and maybe I'll answer your question right here on my podcast. Dakota asks, are you shocked the Seattle Seahawks traded Russell Wilson? You know, here's what surprises me about that, Dakota. What do teams always search for? They search for a franchise quarterback. They have a franchise quarterback in Russell Wilson, and they trade him. Very strange to me that in an era where teams are doing just about anything to acquire franchise-type quarterbacks, that they let him go. So I am surprised. I know there had been talk about it last year. I really did not think it was going to happen. I really didn't, Dakota. You know, now with the Denver Broncos. Duncan asks, why do you think certain teams stop playing with intensity after the All-Star break? You know, Duncan, that's a good question. I don't know. It should never happen. I mean, they're getting paid too much. Uh, but there are I've, – I've been – Listen, there were some Kings teams that just would flat out quit at the end of the year. I watched it, and it was the most annoying, awful thing in the world. You know, it's a long, monotonous season, and some players, for whatever reason, even though they're getting paid a lot of money, when they have nothing to play for, the intensity suffers. You know, fortunately, Duncan, I don't think it happens as much as it used to, but it used to happen more often than not. Rob asked, will Belichick or Popovich win another championship? I don't think so, and I think it's unlikely that Pop will win another championship because I just don't see the Spurs being in that position of luck. And let's just call it the way it is. David Robinson and Tim Duncan. And then when I say luck, they have a phenomenal front office when you get the Mono Ginobili's and the Tony Parkers of the world. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like they just lucked into all the ping pong balls, but I mean, they that was huge. I, I will say Belichick 
I would say would win another Super Bowl over Popovich. But I'm not so sure that either will be holding up their respective trophies from their leagues. All right. Derek wants to know, did you watch Tiger Woods' daughter's Hall of Fame speech? You know, Derek, I did not. I'll go back and watch it. Uh, Reed wants to know, what's my take on Jerry Jones' lawsuit? I don't have a take. I really don't. It's of no interest of me. It really isn't. Uh, Jimbo wants to know, what do you make of Calvin Ridley's suspension? Are you surprised he'll even be able to play again after next season, assuming another team will want to sign him? Listen, he didn't do anything wrong other than stupidity. He was stupid. I mean, what he did was benign. It didn't hurt the league. It was it was a stupid decision by him. If he's able to play and help a team, he'll play. All right? Plain and simple. He will. Uh, Kevin again asked, was the Wilson trade a mistake for the Seahawks? I think it was, Kevin, but time will tell in terms of what they end up doing uh, with those draft picks. Jake asked, did you think Tom Brady was going to return. Jake, when he announced his retirement, I did not. I thought after 22 years, that would be it, and he would be done. So I am a little surprised, Jake. I'm a little surprised. Luke wants to know if the Panthers get Deshaun Watson, are they a playoff team? I said yes before Brady went back to the Bucks. I thought with Deshaun Watson, the Panthers would be the best team in that division. They're not better than Tampa if Brady is there, and he is going to be there. So I'll, I'll say no. Could they be a wild card? Yeah, they could. But I'm going to say no because I think that Watson will be suspended for at least six games wherever he ends up. Just, just a guess. Just a guess. Jackson wants to know, will the quality of play in Major League Baseball be down because of the lockout? I don't think so. I think the quality of play will be the same, which – to me, is not very good to begin with, with the way the game is played. I don't like the way the game is played, but no, I don't. I don't believe. I really don't believe so. Mike wants to know: Did the Colts win the Wentz trade, getting two third-round picks and offloading a salary? I think they did, Mike. It's a good question. Time will tell, uh, but I really think that they did. Brian wants to know: Do you think the Spurs can make the playoffs? They can, but it's going to be very difficult. I just don't think they're good enough. I don't think they're consistent enough. I would never put it past Pop. You know, they got New Orleans and Portland. Ahead of them, I'll say no, they won't make the playoffs. Bryce asked, how much did Rick Adelman have to do with the Kings' success? Well, they had very good players. That's number one. And Rick was a perfect coach for that team. And I'll tell you what else Rick did, which was very smart. He, and when I say smart, it's the only way it would have worked. Chris Webber had a gigantic ego and had to have his own set of rules. And Rick allowed Chris to do what Chris wanted to do. You know, when Chris was hurt, or if Chris had an injury, Chris would show up to practice, get treatment, and then leave. He wouldn't even stick around and watch practice. I mean, you remember when Chris was hurt and he was seen across the street in the second half at the ATM machine? You remember when, when, when Chris was hurt and he hadn't been around the team much and he ends up getting on the airplane to fly to L.A. for a big, big nationally televised game on a Sunday afternoon. You're thinking, oh, wow, Chris is great. He's going to be close to coming back, and he's going to support the team. He's going to be with the team on the bench. And where's Chris? Is he at the game? No. Where's Chris? Chris is in Beverly Hills with Tyra Banks having lunch. You know, there aren't a lot of coaches that would put up with that crap. And, and, and listen, Chris was not easy to deal with. He was not easy to deal with. And anyone that tells you differently is lying. 
All right. Rick Adelman would allow Chris to kind of do what Chris wanted to do as long as he played well. And he did. You know, Chris played very well. I mean, the guy was an all-star. But I, I, there aren't a lot of coaches that would have coached Chris that way. Rick Adelman kind of, you know, bit his tongue. He really did. He bit his tongue. Rick was a great coach. Don't get me wrong. Uh, really, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, well, he is in the Hall of Fame. I thought he should have been in the Hall of Fame a couple of years prior. I'm glad that he got in last year. I was very happy for Rick. So, you know, yeah, he he definitely did. Now, I will also say this. I thought Rick's biggest mistake in eight years with Sacramento was putting Chris in the starting lineup when he came back after missing basically the whole year and came back on March 2nd. And I thought that was a huge mistake. And it should have been, hey, I'm the coach, and this is the way it's going to be. Rick wasn't like that. There was no way Chris was ever going to come off the bench. And I thought Rick made a mistake. And I know I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth here. In one, one sense, I'm saying Chris would have never gone for that. And in another sense, you know, I'm saying Rick should have done that. You know, Rick didn't do it because he knew Chris wouldn't accept it. But, you know, who's the coach and who's the player? I believe that the Kings lost a really good opportunity to win a championship that year when Chris came back in March. Kings had the best record in the NBA. They had the best record in the NBA, if you remember that. And Chris came back against the Clippers and had a great game. And then after that, he really never played well the rest of the season. From that point on, the Kings were a 500 team, and they lost in Game 7 in Round 2 to the Timberwolves. So I thought that was Rick's. The only other person that I ever heard say that was Aileen Boisson of the Sacramento Bee. And she was spot on. She was right. Jacob asked, did the Packers make the right decision offering Aaron Rodgers so much? Of course they did, Jacob. With Aaron Rodgers, they're a Super Bowl contender. Without Aaron Rodgers, they're not. Absolutely. Ian wants to know, uh, Yarmir Yager thinks that Alex Ovechkin will break the NHL goals record. Do you agree? You know what's interesting? Wayne Gretzky thinks that he's going to break the record too. All right? So he's 36 years old. And... When you look at OV and what he's done, it's been amazing. By the way, and I got some inside information because uh, my roommate in college and one of my dear best friends, George McPhee, is the one that drafted Alex Ovechkin. He tells me the story of being over in Russia with OV's parents. So he, he's got to get to 894, right? Got to get to 894. He's 36 years old, and I'm trying to think if he scored. Let me let me look this up real quick. If uh, if he scored last night, uh, I'm going to say he's not going to break the record. I know that Gretzky thinks that he is going to break the record. All right, I am not so sure. I mean, he's got to first of all stay injury free, right? He's got 766 goals. That's a lot of goals, boy. That's a lot of goals. I love watching OV play. I'll tell you, does anyone has anyone ever had a better shot from the left dot on the power play? Seriously. Has anyone ever had a better shot from the circle on the left? All right? Than Alex Ovechkin. I mean, the guys on the power play uh, is just absolutely out of this freaking world. And he's good everywhere else, too. But that shot on the left wing from the dot, it's unbelievable. It really is. Always great to get your questions here on Crowd Ultra. Just go to crowdultra.com and maybe I'll answer your question on my next podcast.
It's time for Grant Rant. And today's rant is brought to you by the Home Theater Company. For your audio, video, and home theater needs, just go online, hometheatercompany.com. So the Sacramento Kings can't win when they need to, and they can't lose when they need to. They beat the Chicago Bulls last night, and with the win, they are 25 and 45. It's truly unbelievable. Now, I've said this in the past, and I'm going to say it again. For those of you that may be new and are just learning about Grant Napier, the players don't give a damn about the draft. They don't care. They don't care whether the team has the first selection, the 10th selection, or no selections at all. They do not care. Alvin Gentry, to his credit, is coaching to win games. But doesn't management need to take a different approach here? I mean, the Kings season has been an absolute embarrassment. It's been absolutely terrible, right? Is anybody going to disagree with that? You have 12 games left. You have 45 losses. Going to be very difficult to be worse now than Oklahoma City and Houston. That's not going to happen. OKC with 48 losses, and Houston was never reachable anyway. Then in the East, you have Detroit and Orlando, But now here's the team that you have your eye on, the Indiana Pacers at 23 and 46. The Spurs have 43 losses. Don't you think that at this point, with only 12 games left, it's time for the management to say, you know what, we're going in a different direction and we're going to start playing our youth and play them a lot of minutes. Instead of playing De'Aaron Fox pretty much the entire freaking game, we're going to limit his minutes to 25 a night and so on and so forth. I mean, why would you ruin the season now by going out and winning games and changing your draft position, even if it's by one spot? Why would you do that for? Honestly, the only way the Kings are going to get good is getting a big-time player in the draft. Now, you're not assured of getting a big-time player in the draft, even if you have the number two pick. We learned that with Marvin Bagley or the number five pick. We learned that with Thomas Robinson or... Oh, I'm going to stop right there. I could list so many players. But I like the odds, all right? If you're one, two, three, or four, you got a much better chance of getting a very good player than if you're number five. I don't understand it. I'm not saying throw games. I'm not saying try to lose intentionally. What I am saying is put the younger players out on the floor, limit your best players, and don't go out and win games that you shouldn't be winning like last night against the Chicago Bulls. Like, what the hell good does that do? Seriously, your season is done. It's over. It's been a failure, okay? Don't make it worse by winning games all of a sudden. Please, don't do that. But then again, Kings fans are used to that because that's pretty much the year or the way it's been year in and year out. I mean, what else are you going to say? Kings fans are used to it. Year in, year out. Can't win when you have to. Can't lose when you should. How damn frustrating is it? And that's my rant for today. And that is my podcast for today. Don't forget to join me again on Friday as I'm going to have part two as we reminisce my favorite moments at Arco Arena. Always great to have you on board here. If you don't like that, with Grant Napier. So long, everybody.